a little bit taller than you are. Alright, alright. You're good. Alright, well good evening. I'm so excited to be here with you tonight and share a little of my own vocation story. Um, but I wanted to start the night by entrusting ourselves and our night to Our Lady as we begin everything in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Preachers, St. Joseph, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, vocation, right, is this, this big topic. And I wanted to start at a source, right, somebody better educated than me, but I want to take a look at Lumen Gentium. Because before I go into a conversation about my vocation to religious life, I think it's important that we remember that we all are called to a vocation. In the church, we're called to be holy. Right? We have this universal call to holiness, and the way we live that out is our vocation. And the Lord has a particular vocation in mind for each one of us. Some of us may have found our vocation already. Some of you may be married with beautiful children. Some of you may still be discerning. Is the Lord calling me to marriage? Is he calling me to the priesthood or religious life? But he has a beautiful plan in mind for each of you to make you holy and to make you happy. So, Lumen Gentium, the universal call to holiness. Indeed, in order that love, as good seed, may grow and bring forth fruit in the soul, each one of the faithful must willingly hear the word of God and accept his will, and must complete what God has begun by their own actions with the help of God's grace. Vocation is our call to love. And so in discerning vocation, we really are asking the question, how am I called to love? And there's no one that can love in the world and love the Lord the way you can. Which is remarkable when you think about it, right? I am made to love in a particular way. How is the Lord calling me to do that? St. Therese would talk about, in her discernment, she would say, I have found my vocation at last. In the heart of the church, I will be loved. And while that was a particular call to her, in her Carmelite vocation, it so beautifully sums up what we're called to do. We're called to love in the heart of the church. I love telling vocation stories. I love hearing vocation stories. I love hearing people's engagement stories. Right? And as you listen to them, there are going to be these threads that are in common. Right? Um, and I think the most important one is that why I fell in love. Right? Well, why him? Why that community? Why the priesthood? I fell in love. Right? It's that simple. The Lord is calling us to love. And the Lord says, he tells us, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. I've called you to this life. And there's a mystery and a reality in our vocations. To answer the question, how did I become a Nashville Dominican, I'm going to actually have to back up on you. I have to answer the question, how I became a Catholic Christian. I was not baptized as a child. We didn't go to church. We weren't church-going people. Didn't believe in God. We did not believe in God, but he wasn't a part of our life. I grew up as an Air Force brat. I don't know 
if any of you have military ties, but I was the child of an Air Force father um, who very beautifully served his country. Um, but that had some effect on me growing up. I grew up with this sense of rootlessness. In 16 years, I've lived in nine different houses. And as a child, I remember thinking, when I grow up, I'm never moving again. <laughs> I'm going to find a house. I'm going to live there forever. Forever. So I entered a mendicant order. So, yeah. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord's sense of humor in that one. We'll get to that. So we were unchurched. We were Easter Bunny, Santa Claus people. But I have this sense of remembering as a child that church was a safe place. If I was ever in trouble, I could go hide in the church. I don't know where that came from, but that sense was very strong in me that church was, was a haven. So I grew up in this environment, but at a certain point you reach a crisis, a turning point. And there were two major events in my life that really turned my outlook on things. Um, I was a senior in high school when September 11th happened. And not having any faith background, it was very difficult to understand this encounter with evil. I'd never encountered evil before, really, ever. And I remember my reaction. I didn't know it was prayer, but my reaction was to pray. And so I went and I sat on the steps of my parents' house, and I lit a candle, and I sat there quietly, because I didn't know how to pray. But that was my response, was, this is heavy, this is real, and I need to do something to respond to it, to find good. That was my first turning point. The second is more personal, I think. Um, when I was a freshman in college, one of my good friends killed himself. Um, and it's still, still something that's, that's very difficult to talk about. But uh, I was in my dorm room and, and working on a project late at night, and I get this instant message from my friend. Ryan's dead. And then the, her end of the text message shuts off. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. What are you talking about? How was he dead? And so I sat up all night long and tried to do things, tried to, you know, get my mind off of that. But I, it just was there, this reality of life and death. How do I respond to this? And it was Saturday night that he had died. And so Sunday morning, all of my roommates start getting up to go to church. And in, in that moment, my reaction was, you pray. When something horrible happens like this, you pray. So I went with a friend to church. She got up, she saw there was something wrong. I think I told her a little bit. She said, okay, do you wanna come with me? Yes, I'll come with you. And I'm sitting in her church and they had intercessions for the dead. And I put his name into the intercessions. There was a, there was a way to pray. And it helped me understand that that wasn't the end, right? His death, this evil was not the end. There was something more than this pain that I was experiencing. And so these two kind of turning points really helped me start to see, okay, there's more. Life isn't rosy all the time, 
but there's, there's more to life than maybe what I was, was looking at. So this started a, a period of questioning in college. And I feel so incredibly blessed because college is a time where so many people fall away from the faith. Um, not all, but, but many people really struggle once they're, once they're in college, once they're in that environment, especially in a secular school. How strong is my faith? Can I live it on my own? Right? So, but for me, it was the opposite. It was a time of discovery of my faith and a time of the Lord really drawing me to himself. So I started asking questions. I'm a good Dominican. I start asking questions of anybody and everybody that will listen to me. What is, what is this all about? What's the meaning of life? Right? Um, and I had some really beautiful people put in my path that really were faithful and really helped me find the Lord. So I would, I would study, I would learn, I would explore. And my journey took me in many directions. Um, I was at the University of Virginia. Here, there's some walkers in the room. <laughs> and I was studying the Middle East, of all things, to lead me to the Catholic Church. I was studying the Middle East. And so I would learn about these faith traditions, causing so much conflict in that region, apparently. But I would see um, what they were teaching, and I would study it. I would read their texts. I visited a mosque. I went to the synagogue. I, I tried to learn as much about religion as I possibly could. And in that study, and in that investigation, more and more I came to see that there is, there is truth, and there is goodness, and there is beauty in everything, but that the fullness of truth is in the Catholic Church. So my, my study of what might have taken me in many different directions led me in a very concrete way to this rootedness of the truth is in the church. I remember going to adoration. I had a very good friend who became my godmother, and she would take me to adoration. And this was, this was a real turning point in faith for me. And I remember kneeling in prayer at Thomas Aquinas Church in Charlottesville, and it was dark, and the only light was on the Blessed Sacrament. And I sat there, still and quiet, thinking, really praying, but I thought I was just, you know, having this intellectual exercise. And I remember this thought. Either this is what they say this is, Jesus Christ, or all these people are crazy. Right? There's, there's no middle ground there in the Eucharist. It's either Jesus Christ, or we're all staring at a piece of bread. Just bare bones. So, and in that moment... The Lord blessed me with a gift of faith in the real presence of the Eucharist that has never left me. And he helped me see, no, this is really me. I mean the things that I say. When I say this is my body, it is my body. And that reality changes everything. If the church's teaching on the Eucharist is true, then everything else falls into place. Right? There are no barriers no artificial walls that I had been putting up or society had been putting up for me about the truth, they all fall away. Because that's the heart, that's the root that is our faith centered in Jesus Christ. 
So what do you do when you come to realize that Jesus Christ is truly present in the Eucharist? Well, you got to get baptized. So I was entered RCIA, and about a month before I graduated, I was received into the church, received all my sacraments at the Easter Vigil, which is 11 years ago, just two weeks past. Conveniently, it was a Dominican parish. That'll come back later. <laughs> and in my acceptance of, of the Catholic faith and the, the truth of the Catholic faith, I also came to see that the Mass is the same everywhere. So this sense that I had had all my life of, of moving around and not having roots, there was something in the Mass that was never going to change, no matter where I was. Go anywhere. And the Mass would be the Mass. And Jesus would always be there. So I'm baptized, got my sacraments, I'm about to graduate. What am I going to do with my life? So this is that, that important piece of discernment that the Lord invites all of us to in many stages in our life, in, in big ways and in little ways. But the question came up, how can I repay the Lord for what he's done? He's picked me up from where I was, some butt puddle, happily content to play, but not realizing I was in a mud puddle, picked me up and set me in the heart of the church. How can I stay rooted to him now that I've found him? So if you're really brave, you'll ask the Lord this question. Lord, what do you want me to do? But you got to be brave. Like, that's, that's an invitation. That's an openness. And he, he wants to take full advantage of that. What would you like me to do, Lord? Come follow me. Okay, where? So he sent me on this great adventure, right? Remember how I said I never wanted to move ever again? So he sent me to the Pacific Northwest, which liturgically is about as far from Arlington as you can get. But again, I see the universality of the church. The mass is the mass. Everywhere. It's the universal church. And then he sends me to Boston, this other leg of my whirlwind adventure of following the Lord. And when I'm in Boston, they were setting up perpetual Eucharistic adoration. The big billboards all over the city was phenomenal. Come, adore the Lord. We need more of those. Because it puts Jesus onto people. So, I'm at, I'm at this parish, they're starting up adoration, they're looking for people to sign up for hours. And of course, there's a boy, really nice looking boy that I'm, of course, interested in, who's trying to get people to sign up for times. Like, wow, well, yeah, I'll sign up for a time. Sounds <laughs> great. Right? But what an hour a week spent with the Lord will do for you is phenomenal. Right? You slow down, you have no other obligations, you sit with the Lord. No agenda. And you see what He does in your life. I invite each of you to, to take that opportunity. Spend some time with the Lord. See what he does. So I did that. And it changed me. And it opened me. And it gave me the silence to hear him. And then he says, come follow me. Well, I thought I was following you. Where are we going now? All right, so, so come and see. I had a spiritual director at the time. And he said, you'll never be happy and settled unless you consider the possibility of a religious vocation. You might not have one, but you'll never be content unless you look. 
You have to come and see. So I had read Thomas Merton, Seven Story Mountain. He makes it sound so easy to move to a cloister and make cheese for the rest of your life. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll be, I'll be a travestine. Great. I know where I'm going. From religious vocation to a cloister. No, no. Um, so, I, so I go on this retreat, a beautiful retreat with the travestines outside of Boston. And there are several women there making this retreat, um, not discerning religious life, just there to listen to the Lord. And none of them want to get up for matins at 3 in the morning, but me. I don't know why. Well, we're here. Why won't we go to matins? So I get up for matins at 3 in the morning, which when I was in college was the time that I was going to bed. But I get up for matins at 3 in the morning, and I start walking across their field. Their guest houses in one part and the chapels in the other. And I start... Sister Ann Dominic has heard this story many times and she knows where it's going. <laughs> so I'm walking across the field and all of a sudden, and this is the Lord using everything, right? All of a sudden, ah! and I'm like scared to death because it's three in the morning and I didn't bring a flashlight. Ah! I've woken up the sheep <laughs> who are scared to death of me and I'm scared to death of them and I'm running to the chapel as fast as I can possibly go. And I get there, and I don't remember matins, and I wasn't leaving till the sun came up because that was very scary. But it gave me some time to be with the Lord. I'm sitting with the Lord, avoiding the scary sheep. And, and I'm talking to him. I'm saying, Lord, this life is really beautiful. These women are, have an incredible call. Where are the children? Which is a weird thing to ask at a cloistered monastery. There aren't going to be children at a cloistered monastery. There just aren't. Why aren't there children here? I don't know if I can live without children around. I don't have to be my children. I don't have to be biologically mine. But there need to be children. I can't. I can't stay here. This isn't. This isn't for me. And it's really beautiful in the theology of consecrated life. We talk about spiritual motherhood. And that's what that moment was, right? I'm called to be a spiritual mother. And there are different ways that happens in the church. Therese was a spiritual mother in her Carmel to people that were far off that she never saw. I'm called to be a spiritual mother to the 10-year-olds in front of me. Right? They're there. They're an important part of my vocation. But I had to be in that cloistered environment to see it, to miss it. So I get back home, talking to my spiritual director. Okay, I got it, I got it. I got to teach. You're supposed to be a teaching sister. You're supposed to be a Dominican. No, that's too easy. I'm, no, no. So, I mean, that's obvious. It's going to be harder than that. No, it doesn't have to be that hard. You're made to be a Dominican. The Dominicans converted you. You think like a Dominican. I'm always reminding you about what a Dominican you are. Right? He was a Jesuit. <laughs> Is a dear and holy judgment, but many times he would just look at me and go, Ugh, you're such a Dominican. I go, I know. <laughs> so, okay, so I know I'm supposed to be a Dominican. Teaching sister, he says, call Nashville. Call Nashville. Hi, I have a vocation to your community. When can I enter? <laughs> this is not the way to do it, just FYI. <laughs> so, so the vocation director, very sweetly, says, and who are you now? Have you met any of us? Maybe you should meet some of us before you like apply. But I have a vocation. 
Okay, okay, I'll meet you. So I meet some sisters that are living nearby. And then finally, I get the, the go-ahead. You can come to Nashville. Come on our street. So I get there, and it's amazing. It's just, this is home, right? The minute I stepped onto the, the property in Nashville, I knew this was my home, right? I'm walking through the cemetery knowing that this is where I'm going to be buried. This is my home. I'm trying to figure out the best way to sew a habit out of curtains so I don't have to leave. I'm serious. Right? And one of the retreatants that was with me said, you know, not everybody that comes on these retreats wants to stay. Oh, no. I want to stay. What does that mean? Because you have a vocation. Okay. So this, this retreat is amazing. Right? It's everything I could possibly want in a religious community. They're teachers. They wear the habit. They're in the South. They have schools in Virginia. Like it's a new car. I don't know. Everything I could possibly want. Okay. But it's home, right? It's home. So I say to the vocation director, yeah, this is, this is definitely it. Now that I'm actually here, now that I actually know you, I'm certain. Have you told your parents yet? No. Maybe I should do that. Yeah, maybe you should do that. We're not giving you papers till you tell your parents. Okay, so I'm living in Boston. Retreats in Nashville. There are no direct flights between Nashville and Boston. They all connect through Washington, D.C. <coughs> and as was mentioned at the beginning, I'm local-ish. So I land in Washington, D.C. with a very, very short layover. Like, I got to run to my terminal. And as I step off the plane, I think to myself, be a good place to get stranded. My, my people are around here, my friends, my family. This would not be a bad place to get stranded. I've been stranded in places that are not so pleasant to be stranded, but this would be quite nice. So I run to my gate, and it should be boring, and everybody should be on it. <coughs> and they're just there, milling around. Nobody's boarding. It's come over the announcements. Oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there's, there's been a delay. We'll be back with you in a minute. Some time passes. I start praying. Lord, if I get stuck, I'll tell them. <laughs> right? Everybody's faces are falling. It's like 9 o'clock at night. Oh, man, we got to stand in D.C. And I'm like ripping and jumping up and down. Yay! After God, hooray! So, we come back on the announcements. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the runway lights at Boston Logan been taken out by an Air France jet. <laughs> Nobody injured, no weather, just direct hand of God keeping me put. We can't leave till the morning, so I just have a place to sit. All right, so I get to tell my parents. And it was so beautiful because from the time I got to Nashville on my retreat to the time I entered, he just made everything line up. Everything that needed to happen, happened. Every conversation that I had to have fell into place. They even like led the conversations for me, right? I see my mother, she says, there's something you want to tell me? Yes. You're in her in convent? Yes. Right? Not the first time she asked that, but the first time I said yes. <laughs> so, so the, the Lord was leading me through it, just like he had led me into the church, he was leading me 
in this very beautiful path to the convent. So I call up the, the vocation director. You will never guess what happened. I got to tell my parents. And you could tell over the phone that she had this smile on her face. I was like, of course you got stuck. I mean, stuff happens all the time. But just with her knowing a little grin, all right, well now we can move forward. But the beauty of the Lord making it so clear to me, right? I have called you. You've not chosen me. You wouldn't have picked Nashville, right? This wasn't in your five-year plan, but this is my plan. So the preparations, right? Finding black knee socks to go with my black skirt and black vest. Finding nun shoes, right? And then the fears that go with it. What if I get stuck somewhere and I can never enter? I was actually at Mass at a Roxbury Carmel in Boston. Um, my spiritual director had taken me out there for Mass. And we actually got stuck inside the Carmel. The door had fallen off the sacristy. Uh, the, the handle had fallen off the sacristy door. And so I said, no, I'm actually stuck in the Carmel, but I'm supposed to go to Nashville, right? These, these crazy irrational fears that come up. But like I said, the Lord just worked through everything. And I had no doubts, no doubts, until entrance day, as I'm pulling up. Oh no, what if I've made a terrible mistake? <laughs> I'd only been to visit once. In three days, he showed me where he wanted me to be. Anyway, so I pull up. Okay, I hope this is it. And I walk into the chapel, and I'm home. And these are my roots. And this is where I'll be forever. Just remarkable. And that's just the fairy tale part. That's just getting there. It's better from there. It's the living it that's been the most incredible part. Right? The Lord, he woos us. He brings us to this beautiful ideal. And then he lets us live it. And he lets us see that it's more real and messier but much more beautiful. And as religious, and indeed all Christians, we're called to conformity with Christ. Right? We're rooted in Jesus Christ. We're called to look like Jesus on the crucifix, though. Right? The Lord suffered. We just experienced in, in Holy Week the Lord's suffering for his love for us. He has wounds, but they're glorified wounds. And so to see the challenges and the struggles of life, just like marriage, in religious life, are, are so beautiful. And it makes me think of that line of the Princess Bride, life is pain, princess, and anybody who tells you otherwise is selling something. Right? But there's a beauty in it. There's a reality in it. And it's the joy of that reality of a world that is not artificial, that's not a dream world. My brother, who went to George Mason, who's not a Christian, pray for his conversion, came to visit the convent once. And he commented, he wrote me in a letter about this, the thing that he experienced while he was there. There was this tangible sense of something. And he talked about the grace and the joy that the sisters showed. And grace is not really a word in his vocabulary, but that was the word that he chose to describe the sisters. And he wasn't sure how we acted when all the guests left, right? He thought it was a facade. 
But he was so struck by how tangible this joy and this grace was. He hadn't experienced it anywhere else. And I think it's that sense when you're visiting or, or have found your vocation, right? There's a joy here. There's a, there's a tangible grace. I want what they've got. And it's that joy of belonging totally to Jesus, to being rooted totally in him and in the church. And then there are a couple more realities of the religious life that are just so profound. I think one that I'm most particularly struck by is community and how community for, for our sisters forms and supports us. 300 women living in one house is supernatural. There's no other explanation, right? It doesn't work any other way. But the reality and the self-knowledge and the joy of knowing who you are in the sight of God as his beloved that comes from that experience of community is amazing. As consecrated religious are called to a life of prayer, we have this beautiful ability to spend a lot of our day in prayer, um, both privately and communally. And how the perseverance in prayer is witnessed to us in community, particularly by our sisters in the infirmary, and is encountered so profoundly in the sacraments, in the Eucharist, right? in the real presence of Christ that drew me to the church in the first place. That is my, my touchstone. That is what I am rooted the most in. That is my life. I have this analogy of the life of prayer. Because at the beginning, it's like, you know, there's a honeymoon period. And it's easy and it's light. And then at some point, prayer can get difficult. But my analogy is a, a couple that's been married for a while, maybe has several kids. Um, it's the breakfast table kiss, right? He's going off to work, he gives you a little kiss. It's not a passionate encounter, it's not a honeymoon, but there's this profound love that's in it, this profound reality of belonging to the other. That's my analogy for, for prayer. Over, as it develops over time, that belonging to Christ. And then our obedience. I joked, right? I never wanted to move, but then I entered a mendicant order. But I'm still so rooted, even in my being sent. I'm not wandering. I have roots. I have real roots. And I have a stability in my mendicancy that I never thought was possible. And it goes back to prayer and community and the sacraments. I know what I'm rooted in. My novice mistress would always remind us, it doesn't matter where you go. You could go to Scotland, you could go to Houston, you could go to Murfreesboro, but anywhere you go, you're assured of two things. You'll have the blessed sacrament and you'll have your sisters. And that's where your rootedness will be. And then one last little point about the living of the reality of my vocation to consecrated life is that element of consecration. In the theology of religious life, we talk about consecration as a fulfillment of our baptismal promises. And at the Easter Vigil, when we renew our baptismal promises, there's this formula, right? Do you believe in God? I do, I do, I do. 
much like wedding vows, right? Do you take this man? Do you take this woman? I do. And every time I encounter that in the liturgy, I'm struck by how in our baptismal consecration, there's a unity to our religious consecration. As Dominicans, we're blessed to have a white habit. This helps the symbolism immensely. So when we receive the habit, we kneel before the prioress general, and she says our new religious name, and she hands us one by one the pieces of the habit, and each has a particular prayer that goes with it. And when she hands us our, our tunic, the, the robe, so to speak, of the habit, she says, receive this white robe. May you carry it unstained before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Right? So every time I put on my habit, I'm reminded, right, it's my wedding dress, but it's also my baptismal gown. And I get to wear it every day. So just, I think, to sum up, I want to take some advice from a sage friend. A little thought from John Paul II, St. John Paul II, on vocation and holiness and happiness and how the Lord desires each of us uniquely. This is from an address to the World Youth Day in 2000. It is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is he who provoked you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the masks of a false life. It is he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourself to be ground down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to improving yourselves and society, making the world more human and fraternal. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I take a little bit of time for question and answer. If you have any follow-up questions, feel free to make them hard. So she has to work hard. And I may defer some to Sister and Dominic. Oh, there you go. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Who was your novice mistress? Sister Mary Angela. We were her last group. Yeah. <laughs> One of the beauties of our religious formation um, and it's actually neat because any novice mistress will do this. There's this continuity, right? The one generation of sisters is formed by the next. And they, even if we, we did a community study not too long ago and we read letters from previous mothers general and novice mistresses, and they all sound the same. They have this continuity of, of truth and of understanding of our life. It's just remarkable. How long does it take to get fully professed once you enter? Say it again? How long does it take to get fully professed 
So it's, his question was, how long is the formation process till final vows? Seven years is our, is our process. We have a year of postulancy, a year as novices, which is a canonical year given to us by the church for study and prayer of the vows in particular. We're not allowed to go out and teach during that year. It's the whole year is dedicated towards discernment of the Lord's will. After that, we make temporary vows in the, at the end of seven years. Uh, if the Lord wants to keep us, and the community wants to keep us, then we profess our final vows. So St. Cecilia is the patroness of our congregation. When the four foundresses came to Nashville, they came with the intention of opening a girls' school for music and the arts, and St. Cecilia was a perfect patroness for that school, the academy, um, which was originally housed on the Mother House property in the Mother House building. Um, but it's beautiful to see how that's kind of evolved over the years and how we are very much St. Cecilia Dominicans, even those of us who don't teach at girls' school for music and the arts, um, but how her emphasis on, on music and beauty uh, really shapes who we are as religious women. Um, if you could wind the clock back 10 years when you weren't a Dominican, is there any advice you would give to yourself or just others who haven't necessarily found their vocation? Yeah. Just so, for being, not even necessarily finding the vocation, but following God, being happy, what His question was, what advice would I give myself 10 years ago or what advice would I give to others? Um, spend time in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Right? Slow yourself down, shut off your cell phone, and go and be with the Lord and listen to Him. And He'll speak to you. I don't know what He'll tell you, but He'll tell you something wonderful. Right? Even if you've already found your vocation, even if you've found your spouse, He wants to spend time with you. And that's what you encounter when you spend time alone in prayer is how much he does love you and how much he wants to make everything work for your good, for your happiness, and to make you holy. So you had a lot of little stories about you know, how you identified your vocation. How much of that do you think is kind of retroactive? That you're saying, you know, you recall these events and mm -hmm. say this is what led me. Yeah, so her question... Yeah, no, very good question. Her question was, so I have these little vignettes of, of how my story kind of weaves together. How much of it did I realize in the moment was me being drawn to religious life? And how much do I see retroactively as the Lord pointing me? And I would say 50-50, right? There were some things that were very clear. Um, the Lord is taking me in a particular path. And then there were other things that once I found him, I could see, okay, he set this up in this way. He put this person in my life. He had me take this class with this professor, right, who wowed me with his conversation about God. I didn't know it at the time where that was leading me. Um, but it's really obvious now and really beautiful now to look and look back and see it. Thank you. That's a good question. Any questions for Sister Ann Dominic? <laughs> Somebody said, what's your vocation story? <laughs> that should talk for another night. Yeah. Five seconds, where's your question? Yeah, I don't know what time to go. You can do um, five minutes.
talking after You could ask her about the bioethics curriculum at St. John Paul, right? I mean, I'm, I'd be happy. I'm, I'm not as tall. <laughs> <laughs> She's been telling me that our whole religious life. One of the things, so we, can tell them where we sit at table. So we sit in the same order at table all the time. Um, anyway, so depending on how things fall, we either sit on this side or we sit on this side. <laughs> um, one of the things that's really beautiful about Dominicans, I guess religious life, is you're supposed to be more yourself and not someone else. And so it's really neat, hopefully as you meet priests or religious, they should be more themselves. And I, I know that for me, part of the vocation story wasn't just what's God's plan for me to do, but part of who God have you made me to be. Because there can be such a temptation, and I know starting at middle school, just this constant fear of how do I fit in? And so then I had a personality where I was easily tempted to mold into what I thought people wanted. So a lot of high school was that sense of, I didn't know who I was because I was so interested in making sure that I made the right impression, that by the time I was asking questions, who am I, I had really lost touch to the point where I needed to do both, who am I, and then also, then, then what do I do with that? And so what's been great is that even my whole process of entering religious life, the process itself has given me a freedom to know who I am. So sometimes I wonder, the joy I have, yes, it's Dominican joy, but I think part of the joy of the sisters is we have a particular life that teaches us how to be ourselves, and it is so freeing. <laughs> because when you think about it, how much energy does it take to create another personality and to remember what the fake one is and which time to use it? So there's this, there's this unknown energy that's being spent, so at the end of the day you feel exhausted and unhappy, because you're still not yourself. And so the sisters basically from day one, it's like you're only gonna make it in this life if you're yourself. We don't actually care if you come with your own problems. That would be more normal. But I know for me, one of the things that kept me from entering religious life is I had this invisible <coughs> checklist. I needed to have been holy at birth. Yeah. I needed to have all memorized prayers in my back pocket. And I needed to be, I just, all these Perfect things I didn't have. I didn't grow up knowing the faith very well. I was, I was raised Catholic, but just a lot of catechesis that never happened. And so I just kept thinking, no, religious life is for other people who were holy at a young age, who already knew the rosary and who had family prayer nights. We didn't have family prayer nights. Um, and Lori's like, no, that's not a checklist for me. You've made up an invisible idea of what it takes. And so just a really, really free. So I guess if I could just say anything, my vocation story is, is getting to know who I am. And then the joy comes from being that person fully and really feeling comfortable. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay to not be perfect. It's so healthy to make mistakes. It is so good for us to ask forgiveness. And that is gonna give uh, true freedom and joy as we discover our vocations more fully. Yeah, there you go. Anybody else? Okay. Um, so you said 300 women? Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't imagine. 300 women all women together is joy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have one of, I have one of five siblings, but um, just me and my two other sisters together right. joy yeah. <laughs> at all times. So Which is why it's supernatural. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you think that your religious life 
Beautiful, beautiful. So the question was, how can 300 women live together joyfully? When siblings fight and, and you know, there, there are wounds. So again, it's supernatural. It's that rootedness in Christ. And there's a unity of purpose, right? Um, that allows us, I think, always to assume the best of the other. Um, she's here because she wants to be holy. She's rubbing me the wrong way today, but it's really polishing me up, you know? That's part of it, is that, that knowing her, her good intention. But also, I know who I am. I know that I'm a bride of Christ, and I'm not threatened by my sisters. My, my sister's gifts are my own, right? If she does well, the community does well. Um, we're, not, we're not competing with each other because I'm a bride of Christ. Right? That's who I am. Um, but at the same time, on a human level, right, we're, we're given tools. We're taught conflict resolution. We're taught to be honest. We're taught to bring things up immediately, right? You have an issue. You need to go tell her. I'm not going to tell you for her. Tell her for you. You have to go tell her, right? Is it her issue? Is it my issue? Probably my issue. Where do I need to grow? Right? So, and then a whole bunch of grace. The Lord just puts grace all over all of it. That's a really good question. What do the kids teach you? What do the kids teach me? <laughs> so much. <laughs> Sometimes they teach me that. Sister, you did that wrong. Can look at that again? Yeah, sorry. Just talking and writing at the same time. Um, the kids teach me a lot, and I think um, part of that call to spiritual motherhood and part of um, just what I love about teaching is when I teach them about Jesus, the way they respond deepens my faith and my trust. Right When I'm working with the very little ones and we're talking about the, the parable of the lost sheep, and they get it and they rejoice. He found us. He's going to take care of us. He's taking us home. Right? It helps me trust more. When I prepare little ones for first confession, and they're bold, and they're not afraid, and they want to go back again, it helps me trust. Right? When, I, when I encounter people that challenge me, well, how can the church teach that? Right? It strengthens my faith. And hopefully, I'm forming them too. Hopefully, I'm giving them Jesus. And at the end of the day, as a consecrated woman, that's what I'm teaching them. Maybe I'm teaching them a subject that is not my strong suit. Right? Maybe I don't have a degree in biology, and this year I'm teaching biology. Um, what I'm giving them is Jesus, hopefully in every lesson. Right? But there's, there's more to it than the textbook, um, but that he's there in everything. You are who you should be, you'll set the world on fire. Yeah. Very good. She asked me if I remember this awesome quote of St. Catherine. Um, I love that quote of St. Catherine. So St. Catherine was, was a fiery woman. She stood up to popes, um, tried to get them to, to see where the church was suffering. But I think that's such a great truth, such a great Christian truth. If you are who God wants you to be, you can do amazing things. There's no limit to what you can do. 
If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this hill, move over there, and it will do it. That's how God works through us. Maybe we don't see it. Maybe we don't see the hill moving. I haven't, have you? But, but he's doing that in someone's heart, right? Maybe in the hearts of your families. Maybe in the hearts of your coworkers. He's moving mountains through you. Thank you.